Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be on the they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Philippians 2, 4 through 11. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself to take the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen. It's the word of word of God. Thank you, Britton. You guys, that all month we're going to be talking about um, our foster care ministries, and I just encourage you just uh, talk to our team, pray for our team that's involved in this, get involved. There's probably, I mean. Yeah, I'm like, I don't know how to, if I need to qualify this. There's probably no ministry that greater reflects the heart of the gospel than to take care of the orphan. I mean, that this is what, this is our story, is we were far from God and he brought us close. He adopted us. He gave us the ability to call on him as Father God, as Abba Father. So, um what an amazing ministry, and we have an amazing team that is involved in that. Amen. All right. This morning, we are introducing a new series. It's exciting. And this series will take us uh, through August. It's, it's going to be several weeks. And we are going to walk through the Apostles' Creed. We do this every Sunday, we recite this, and I'm sure there are questions around it. This morning, I'm kind of in between finishing up sort of our series last week, the last few weeks on our liturgies, uh, and launching into and introducing our series on the Apostles' Creed. Uh, the Creed is something that we do every week as a part of our liturgy. We recite this together. And it's easy uh, as part of our liturgy, part of something that we do every week, to lose sight of what exactly it is or what, what is it exactly that we're doing every Sunday. Why do we do this? There's probably two ends of the spectrum in here this morning in the way that we view the Apostles' Creed. On one side, there are those who 
maybe come from more of a formal liturgical background, perhaps uh, some Reformed um, Presbyterian or an Anglican background, or from the Catholic Church, and the Apostles' Creed is comfortable for you. This is a, that, that's something that you've grown up with, you're familiar with. And then there's the other side, maybe in the sort of Anabaptist and some of that end of the, the faith tradition where you're more, I have no creed but the Bible. And the Apostles' Creed possibly is, is pretty foreign to you and maybe even off-putting that we do this. Why do we talk about the Catholic Church every Sunday? And then everyone else kind of falls somewhere in between, somewhere in the middle in that spectrum. There is, I do want to touch on this no creed but the Bible thing just real quick. There is a crowd that would say this, I'll have no creed but the Bible. And their heart, I think, is good. Their implication is that they don't need anything else other than Scripture. And that's true. You, you don't. Uh, we don't need a creed. We don't need to recite it every week. Uh, it's not necessary to recite the Apostles' Creed. There's no magic words in the Apostles' Creed. There's no, like, spell in reciting the Apostles' Creed. It's not like an incantation. It won't save you. But if we're honest, even the no creed but the Bible people, uh, you have a creed. You have a, it may not be written out, it may not be formulized, but you have a system of beliefs, you have a statement of faith, you have a, a way of organizing what you believe, you've got uh, a system of doctrine. And that's what the creed outlines for us. The creed, the Apostles' Creed, is simply a set of, of basic truths that the church has affirmed for most, if not all, of its existence. It has tremendous value in its longevity and its stability. <laughs> doctrinal positions, if you go and read a church's doctrinal position on its website, a lot of times it's written by the elders or maybe just the, the lead pastor. It lacks, they're good, biblical statements. We have one on our website. But sometimes they, they lack what the Apostles' Creed offers in longevity. This has been around in a true endorsed statement for thousands of years. It's stable. Truthfully, the Apostles' Creed forms the framework for which all other doctrinal statements should be based. So the challenge we have as part of our liturgy, and we've focused on for a few weeks now, is that as we recite the Apostles' Creed every week, as we do this as part of our Sunday gathering, some of you dislike it, are uncomfortable with it, maybe entirely or in part. You don't like the part where he descended to the dead, or you don't like the part about the Catholic Church. There's lots of different things um, others of you, at this point, are so familiar with it that you just kind of like mindlessly recite it. And our prayer is that most of us would use this as a formative 
and edifying and unifying practice that together we're reciting this. Our prayer is that the end of this sermon series, at the end of this time looking through the Apostles' Creed, that we would have a deep understanding of the Creed and its usefulness, its beauty in our liturgy, its usefulness as a tool for our discipleship and for our gospel witness. This morning, as we launch into this series, I want to sort of set the stage. We're going to take time and we're going to walk through almost line for line, sometimes just two words, uh, for the next several weeks through the Apostles' Creed. But this morning, I want to... uh, I want to just set the stage. We'll be going in in depth throughout the rest of the biblical background for the creed. And that is really important also just to point out is that we're not spending the next several weeks preaching the Apostles' Creed. We preach the Bible and we preach the scriptures. We teach as the elders. This is our goal is to, to present the word of God to you. And so we're not preaching the creed. We're using the creed as a launching point uh, to preach the scriptures. And while the creed is not scripture, it is very much rooted in the scriptures. That my aim this morning at three key things, my goal this morning. We are going to talk about what is the Apostles' Creed. A little bit of a history lesson. Okay? How many of you guys liked history? Okay, there's some of us. I hope you like history. <laughs> uh, so, number one, what is the Apostles' Creed? Number two, is it biblical? Is it biblical to even have a creed? And number three, we're going to look at the, the Apostles' Creed as our pledge of allegiance. Okay? So let's jump in. What is the Apostles' Creed? And no, it's not the late 90s band that you all love so much. The dictionary defines creed as a set of beliefs or aims which guide someone's actions or a set of fundamental beliefs. A set of beliefs or aims which guide your actions. The Apostles' Creed is the oldest of the Christian creeds. There are several others. There's the Nicene Creed. There's, there's seven or eight other main creeds. But we're going to focus and we recite every week the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is the one that has managed to last for nearly 2,000 years. Relatively unchanged, which is amazing, actually. Scholars disagree over the exact origin of the creed, but we can trace its roots back to very near the beginning of the church. In the early church, there were different versions of this creed that were used as the very first catechism. Now, there's another word that probably offends some of you um, or bothers. Um, but this was the very first form of catechism. So even the, the curriculum that we're using with the kids, the New City Catechism, this was the early version of that. In fact, 
it's fun. Uh, they, they will get to, in question 20-something, they will memorize this. So your kids will be learning this. Actually, and it was, it was fun. This morning as we were reciting it, <laughs> I, I, was, uh, I was holding Jethro, our little one, youngest, and I could hear him. He's not looking at this. He can't read. But I could hear him reciting it in my ear, like mumbling it. So they're getting this, guys. As, as, we, as we do this together as a fellowship, as a community, even our kids are hearing it. And the doctrine, the great traditional doctrine that the church has believed and practiced and lived in for thousands of years is getting in them. In the early church, if someone was to become a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and they were to be baptized, they would learn the Apostles' Creed or an early version of it as the first step in their discipleship. They would recite parts of the Apostles' Creed in the process of being baptized. That's its Trinitarian form. Many throughout history, even into the, the modern age, have used the Apostles' Creed as the outline for systematic theologies and for the basic doctrines. The Creed has been used for a very long time to clarify what exactly it is that Christians believe and to refute any heresy or any false teachings that would come. Possibly the earliest recording. You guys okay with a little history? Yeah? There's some history fans. Possibly the earliest recorded version of the Apostles' Creed or the foundations of it comes from some of the writings of the people uh, right at the beginning. The earliest one I could find is from Ignatius. Is anybody familiar with Ignatius? Ignatius was, legend has it, a disciple of John, and he's writing in the early 100s AD. So this is right at the beginning. And he, he did some really amazing stuff refuting uh, some early heresies and providing clarity in the way that the church would grow. He said this in one of his letters. He said, stop your ear, therefore, when anyone speaks to you at variance with Jesus Christ, who was descended from David, who was also of Mary, who was truly born and did eat and drink. He was truly persecuted under Pontius Pilate. He was truly crucified and died in the sight of beings in heaven and on earth and under the earth. He was also truly raised from the dead, his father having raised him, as in the same manner his Father will raise up, our, raise up us who believe in him by Christ Jesus, apart from whom we do not possess the true life. Does that sound familiar? All the, the like core elements of the Apostles' Creed are there in the way Ignatius is forming this uh, creedal statement, a summary of the beliefs. For the early church, this became what was known as the rule of faith. This was the guiding principles, the guiding doctrine that everything else was based off. 
It accomplished several purposes for them, and I think still holds and accomplishes several things for us. First of all, the creed narrates the Christian story. The creed doesn't propose some new philosophy. It tells a story. It has characters. It has a plot. It develops a story. It's a story about God, about the world, about God's investment in humans, and ultimately about our future. It starts at the beginning with God, the creator, and it ends in the future with a new creation. And at the heart of the story, the center point, the bulk of the creed is the birth, the life, suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, our Messiah. Jesus, the Jesus who shares in our humanity, he's provided a way for us to be transformed by him through that sharing of our humanity. So when we recite the Apostles' Creed, we tell ourselves a story that most of us already know, and it bears continuous repeating. The story is unlike anything else because so much of what we experience in the world so much of what we're told by media, so much of what you see on your newsfeed, so much of all that's going on seems to deny or contradict this story. When we recite this creed together collectively, we are saying that we don't believe or belong to the story that our culture is telling us, but we have a better story. A more true, a more compelling narrative that we are a part of. So in telling this story over and over again, we're preparing ourselves. This is a tool for our discipleship. We are preparing our children so that if we confront, there's three main questions posed by every philosophy, every religion, every other thing. Three main questions. Where do you come from? Who are you? And where are you going? The creed gives you a narrative to answer those questions. The creed helps us to interpret Scripture. The creed is not Scripture. Don't, don't hear that. It has no authority in and of itself. But it serves as a very useful tool to help us in our discipleship and to help us make disciples. We just spent a year looking at the Gospel of Mark as a roadmap for discipleship. The Creed is also a map. It is also a roadmap for our discipleship. I think of the Creed uh, as, you know, one of those, like, simple trail maps? You guys, how many hike? Anybody hike? One of the simple trail maps that just kind of give you, like, the main points, and there's a line between them. And then you actually get on the trail, and there's like, oh, there's a valley there. There's a creek there. There's lots of things going on that you didn't see because the map only gave you the two main points. Reminds me of uh, our kids do junior ranger programs every time we go to a national park. Anybody else? Junior rangers? 
Um, and in the Junior Rangers books, they always have these, like, draw your own map of the national park. And so they have to, like, you know, Yosemite, they'll draw, like, Half Dome and El Cap and Yosemite Falls and the different, the different high, high points. Those are super useful to know what the other highlights are in the park. It's super useful to know all the different key features. Um, but you can't, <laughs> you can't get very far with just that map. If you were trying to get from Tuolumne Meadows to Clouds Rest or to Half Dome, for instance, you guys haven't been to Yosemite yet, you need to go. Um, if you're trying to get from there to there, you're going to need a better map. You're going to need a topographical map. You're going to need something that tells you the terrain, the detail, the elevation change, where there's water, where there's not water, where there's a sheer granite cliff. You're going to need to know more than just the highlights. The Apostles' Creed gives us the highlights of the story. Your Bible is that topographical map. Gives you all the details. It fleshes out the story. Gives you all the, the nuances of the story. You need that surface level map, but it's not enough. Amen? But the creed does help us make sure that we don't get so caught up in one valley, one emphasis, one focus, that you completely forget that there's a waterfall over there because you're so focused on this one rock. It helps us to ensure that we see the full teaching of the gospel. Not just the parts that we find more appealing or easier to believe. The creed is a tool for us as disciples. It's a tool. It's a tool for us as we make disciples. We, when we know the creed, we can narrate the story of redemption. We can point somebody to the different facets and the truths and walk them through the story. When we know the creed, we know what we believe as Christians. Okay, the next point, is the creed biblical? <laughs> and I've heard this actually several times in the last few months as we've talked about this. Like, is the creed even biblical? What, is it even biblical to have a creed? Which is a kind of a funny word anyways that is it biblical. But um, I think the creedal format, having a creed, uh, began as an early Christian adaptation or variant on the Shema Israel. That's why the verse that we read this morning, Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema. Let's put it back up, actually, if we can do that. Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I have commanded you sh shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. 
You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and, you shall, and they shall be as frontals between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and of your gates. The Shema was something that uh, for the Jewish people, they, I mean, they took this very seriously. This is one of the most important passages for them um, in all of the scripture. The Shema was and still is recited by practicing Jews morning and evening. And the implication here is like every time you think about it, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Recite that. Early Jews, early Hebrews would recite this, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They would instantly differentiate themselves from among the polytheistic religions that surrounded them. This practice of reciting the Shema, which I think is the earliest form of a creed, it accomplished a few things similar to what I think the creed accomplishes for us. It was a call for communal, not simply individual, commitment. In the context of options, the Shema is exclusive. And it was also personal. It's communal, it's exclusive, and it's personal. In the Shema was the common shared narrative for all the Jewish people. This is how Israel, the, the, the Jewish people, maintained a culture without a nation state. In exile, in the diaspora, and ultimately in Nazi concentration camps, this is how the Jewish people maintained a unique cultural expression. They held on to their culture, their, their narrative. They reminded and remembered who their God was and who they were in response to who their God was and what they were to do because of all that. It's a creedal statement. The Lord our God is one. It doesn't replace their experience. It doesn't replace their story, but it becomes the most compressed distilled version of their narrative history. The Apostles' Creed, in the same way, finds its origins in our needs to compress and condense in the most fine-tooth form what our story is as Christians. The Creed, like the Shema, is a call for communal, personal, and exclusive commitment. Some people will ask, but why don't we have the Apostles' Creed in Scripture then, in the New Testament? Where's, why isn't Paul reciting the Apostles' Creed? I think what we have is we have the roots of it. Several times, I'm, I could have listed like 15 different verses where Paul, I think, is working out the foundations of what becomes the Apostles' Creed. But possibly just because my, my kids for homeschool just memorized this chapter, but Philippians chapter 2 has been on my mind 
Philippians 2, I think Paul begins to craft and narrate this story. Starting, I'm going to start verse 5 and read this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, though in the form, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Many scholars actually think this was a hymn that was regularly sung in Christian fellowship is a creed of sorts, an early creed that they would use to remember and recite and refresh themselves in the story of Jesus. The prototype, so to speak, of the creed. There are several others. 1 Corinthians 15 is a good one that, that stands out. And for us... The creed is our pledge of allegiance. This is the last point here. The Apostles' Creed is, for us as Christians, the pledge of allegiance. Think a second with me about the pledge of allegiance or the preamble to the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence, right? I bet you I pledge allegiance to the flag. You guys could keep going, I'm sure, I hope. We the people, we hold these truths to be self-evident. These are creedal statements that as a nation, these are things that as Americans, we, or at least we used to, memorize as children. We catechize our children in these truths, in these statements, in these, these, uh, these documents. They're required to be memorized for citizenship. There's a good reason. They outline our nation's ethics and beliefs. They outline who we are as a people. They tell a story. And often are completely forgotten and ignored by those of us who have grown up here and take all of that for granted. And that's the value of remembering this week in and week out. I'm not saying that we shouldn't pledge allegiance to America, by the way. Uh, All I am saying, though, is that we should, as followers of Jesus... He does get our supreme allegiance. Jesus does get our full allegiance. In Romans chapter 10, I don't know if we can get this on the screen. I didn't give it to him. Romans 10, 9 through 10. Paul, this is a famous verse, one of the most used verses in the New Testament. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth 
that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. There are several things I could highlight in this passage, but I just kind of want to take a second and look at a few of these words. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart, confess and believe are really, really important words for this passage. He did not say, if you think that God raised Jesus from the dead and you quietly say a prayer, that you'll be saved. That, that could be, but that's not what he's talking about here necessarily. This is not about mental assent. This is not about uh, just cognitively saying, yeah, I, I think there's something to this. I think this is true. That starts there, but it has to turn from knowing in your head to believing in your heart. Belief implies something far more compelling than knowing. Belief implies action and response and movement. You might know that you need to do something, and it might not ever happen. But when you believe in something, there's action. It reminds me of coffee for me. I was always a coffee drinker. As a little kid, I drank coffee. I've always liked it. I've always enjoyed it. I always knew that it was good. We yeah. We were at our cafe yesterday, and my kids are now ordering decaf black coffees. So, it's a thing. Uh, I always knew that there was really good coffee out there. But when I first tasted a cup of coffee that was mind-blowing, I believed. <laughs> there was a difference. Something changed in the way I approached coffee. I started making coffee differently. In fact, I started roasting coffee. Next thing I know, I have a business, and yeah, then it goes from there. Similar, right, Max? I started paying attention to different details. I believed something about coffee that was more than just knowing. It's not simply enough to just know or even just to believe. Paul says that we have to confess that Jesus is Lord. And confessing is far more than just saying. This is more than just saying Jesus is Lord. He's specifically here, specifically, confession has to do with a declaration that Jesus is Lord. And especially in the first century Roman world, this is massive. If you were to say Jesus is Lord, by implication, what you mean is Caesar is not. It's a huge statement. 
So when the early church recites the Apostles' Creed, it was simultaneously their greatest act of rebellion and their greatest act of allegiance in one statement. This confession that Jesus is Lord is both an act of rebellion and an act of allegiance at the same time. This is our pledge of allegiance. We believe in our hearts, and that must produce outward public declarations that we are not our own and we belong to Christ. He is Lord. He is the ruler. That means that word Lord means he's the ruler and master of all things. He's not just your Savior, he is your Lord. And every Sunday as we recite the Apostles' Creed together, we are declaring as a community our allegiance to King Jesus as Lord, ruler of the universe. This is an intentional, formative liturgy that we do, reminding ourselves of the story. We recite the Creed every week as we declare that we are a people defined by these words, defined by this story. These are the things that bind us together as a community. It's not a building. It's not a name. It's not a website. These are the things that bind us together as a community. As we do this week in and week out, and as we spend the next several weeks looking through this line upon line, I just wanted to set the stage for that. To remind us that, that yes, this is biblical. It's historical. It's biblical. It's a tool for your discipleship. It's useful. Amen? So this week... My encouragement to you is to get together with some people and discuss the Apostles' Creed. Take it out and read it. What are, what are some parts that are really easy for you to say, yeah, I'm 100% behind that? And what are some parts that you're like, yeah, I don't, I don't understand that. I don't, I don't get that. Have an open, honest conversation. Look at it together. Pray for each other. The creed binds us together as a community behind a story. Amen? I'm going to pray and the worship team can come back up. Father, I just thank you that you are a good God. Thank you that we are a part of a story that is much grander, and bigger than we can even possibly understand. God, I pray that as a people, we would be united around this grand narrative, that we would week in and week out remember the gospel. We'd remember the good news of the story that we're a part of. Jesus, we love you and we bless you. Amen.